Metallica, here they come, the kings of metal. Hey, this is Jay Weinberg from Slipknot, and you're listening to Metal Up Your Podcast. Welcome to Middle Up Your Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Wells. This is episode 340. Very special guest, friend of the show, Stefan Shirazi returns. So nice to talk to Stefan again. Uh, He was on back in December of 2020, episode 208, I believe. If you don't know who he is, first of all, you should have heard that episode where we burned down all of his history with Metallica, his history as a journalist, very interesting, basically his entire life story. He is the editor-in-chief of So It Magazine, a journalist. He started rock and roll writing at age 15. He's worked with a million great bands. He's written for publications like Sounds, Kerrang!, Rip, Spin. He travels with Metallica frequently as a photographer, and he edited the Metallica book So What, The Good, The Mad, and The Ugly, which... All of you should own just some of the best uh, excerpts of the So What magazine, the fan magazine from the years. He recently did the 72 Seasons interviews with the band, which have been, of course, as always, insightful and at times stunning revelations into the still sort of fascinating process of what goes into making a Metallica album. Uh, We did chat before the episode and both agreed to keep Metallica talk to a minimum because we talked about Metallica a lot on his first appearance on Metal Up Your Podcast. We mostly stuck to it. We covered everything from David Bowie, James Brown, different interview styles, H.R. Geiger, Kurt Cobain, Chris Cornell, a reevaluation of Limp Biscuit, a surprising conversation with Axl Rose, but of course could not resist talking about the Metallica boys, particularly James Hetfield as an unlikely but important role model for rock music fans and his somehow underrated status as a lyricist and songwriter even though he's fronted the greatest and most popular rock band of the last 40 years. It was a great conversation. We are going to get to it shortly. He does have a Patreon, which you can find the link below. In whatever way you're listening to this, there will be a link below where if you're interested, you can support Stefan on Patreon, where he's posting you know, excerpts of interviews, and you will find out in the episode, perhaps even working towards his first uh, book, collection of his interviews. And he also hosts the football podcast, The Game is About Glory, which you can also find a link below. So we're going to do a little bit of housekeeping. First of all, you may have noticed Ethan is not here. Ethan is taking the month of June off, a very well-deserved break. And uh, we, of course, miss him over here. We miss his flavor. And uh, I'm going to do everything I can, standing in the gap. I've got a bunch of great stuff planned for everybody. 
but we will be missing Ethan this month. All right, moving on. Metallica did just finish two headlining nights, Thursday and Saturday, at Download Festival in the UK. Metal Tales, by the way, coming this week for that. Uh, the British band Architects, who've been opening for Metallica in Europe, they headlined Friday night. And the lead singer, Sam Cart, had this to say about touring with Metallica. I thought this was interesting. He said, the first day of the tour, they brought us flowers and a cake and a card and welcomed us to the tour, which I thought was really sweet. Very classy thing to do. When we toured with Chris Stapleton uh, last fall, Chris and his wife, Morgan, sent her gifts almost every day, which was just such a beautiful gesture. It's simple. you know. It's simple for a band as big as Chris Stapleton or Metallica to um, just have some provisions made to be welcoming tiny little gifts, a card, it's simple, flowers, a cake, to let them know, hey, you're part of the family while you're here, and uh, we're glad you're here. We're lucky to have you. It's just, it sets an amazing tone. I love hearing that Metallica did this. He says, Metallica invited us out to dinner every night after the shows. They let us use the entire stage. They've been so brilliant to us. And for those of you who may not know, when you have a stage as big as Metallica's 72 Seasons, uh, the M72 tour, sometimes those big bands, like if you have catwalks that come out, They'll say, and they're not even being shitheads about it, but they may say like, hey, you can only really just use the normal stage. Like, don't access the catwalk stuff. Or there might just be certain aspects of the production of the stage where they'll ask opening bands not to, you know, engage with. And it's pretty cool that Metallica just tells these bands, hey, explore as much of it as you want. Make it as much of your show as you want. He also said, you don't have to be that nice when you're that, that band, meaning the big headliner. He says, but they are that nice and it's very inspiring. So what... I, I mean, I just love knowing that my heroes are great people on and off the deck. And I love knowing that they're showing these younger bands who may someday be uh, the next Metallica. Um, I don't think that's possible. I don't think any band will ever do what they did again. But whatever the next versions are, Metallica's letting them know, this is how you do it. This is how you be that band. They're setting a wonderful example for these younger rock nerds which I think is cool. So that's that. There's not really much going on. They're touring. They're on tour. The reviews of the tour are excellent. Keeping up with the set list, if you've been listening to the Metal Tales, what are the Metal Tales? All right, the Metal Tales are a way for listeners of the show to come on the show and talk about a current or even a past Metallic show they've been to that's notable. I love the Metal Tales because, and those of you who have heard the ones that I do, Ethan and I usually split those up uh, evenly. The ones that I do, I really try to get inside the person's Metallica story because you may encounter someone who came online, you know, when lightning came out. They may have read something that uh, Stefan Shirazi wrote in 1985 about, you know, the Seven Days of Hell tour. Or if you're like me, you saw the Inner Sandman video in 1991. Or there are a lot of people who listen to the show who got into the band in 2003 with St. Anger, and St. Anger is their favorite Metallica album. I love hearing those stories. And then, of course, I love burning down the set list. What was everyone like? How did they look? What were the people like around you? That's what the Metal Tales are. The way that you are eligible to come on Metal Up Your Podcast for a Metal Tales segment is you just join us on Patreon. You're going to hear a commercial for Patreon later. Easy, affordable. If you're willing and able, you want to support the show. Helps keeps the helps keep the lights on in Metal Up Your Podcast Industries. It helps keep the show uh, grounded, connected to you guys, the fans. And it, you know, we have all sorts of things over there that we give you as incentives for joining Patreon. Um, but of course, the main one. Uh, pertinent to what I'm talking about is you get to come on the show and tell your Metallica story. I love it. Going Supernova, my album, my new rock album, the vinyl has finally made it to my house. I have held it in my hands. I've jammed it in my studio. It's beautiful. And all the Kickstarter supporters are going to start getting these in the mail this week, probably. 
All the extra goodies are getting put together. You know, I'm making un- 14 unique mixtapes filled with songs that inspired the album. I did not realize that 14 unique mixtapes would be about 350 songs. So I put all that together. It was super fun. Of course, there are a couple of guitars that are getting shipped out. There are magnets, buttons. There's going to be a listening Zoom party where I'm going to actually crack open the the session files. We're going to, you know, for anyone interested, we're going to be able to like pull up the song gotcha and go through the stems if you want you know i'm just going to be able to crack all that open it's going to be a really beautiful fun zoom hang celebration of the album all of you who've been on the ride with me who supported it who've sent a nice word who have posted about it i really appreciate you guys really means a lot i'm glad this record got birthed into the world and uh i'm happy to uh happy to start sending these out okay new patrons we got a lot here so i'm going to burn through this list all of you sweet beautiful people who have ponied up and supported the show, supported the people who make the content that you love. It just means so much to us. I want to say thank you to Drew McLean, Jason Billadu, Increases Pledge, Brandon Starbacker, James D, Brett Mercer, Gary Byron, Braxton Nezovich, Tommy, Katie Schwarm, Mano Soul, Christopher Rosales, and Alexander Bakia. Thank you guys so much for deciding to support the show. I mean, I really can't tell you how much it means to us, how important it's been over the years um, in, in keeping us excited to do the work, excited to, you know, take our free time to think more about Metallica, to research more about Metallica, to try to get you interesting interviews like we did with Stefan today. It just means a lot. It helps a lot. And of course, if you can't support us on Patreon, totally get it. The easiest way to support the show is to leave a positive review on iTunes or even just to post about us on social media or tell your buddies about it. Maybe you have your own podcast. I feel like everyone has at least two podcasts now. So maybe on one of your two podcasts, the one that has uh, more listeners, maybe talk about us, point some people our way. Uh, Our podcast is a celebration of music. So anyone that you think might be interested in that, you can point them our way. Easiest way to get a hold of us since day one. Remember Samim? Since Samim sent the first email on New Year's Day of 2017. Uh, it's been our email address, metalupyourpodcastshow at gmail.com. I'm not going to read a ton. We've got a ton of emails, but I'm just going to read a few that I think are interesting enough for me to get away with reading by myself without having my cohort, my compatriot, my compadre uh, to read with me. So we're going to kick it now to what we lovingly refer to as the email portal. All right, our first email is from Drew White, who says, What's up, guys? I've always liked Metallica, but recently I've become borderline obsessed. I'd primarily only listened to the first five albums and stayed away from everything else. Since I started listening to the podcast recently, he says, I started with the first couple of episodes and heard how passionate Clint was about Load, I gave it a chance. Really glad I did. While it's not ever going to be in the upper echelon for me, I can't believe I've gone through life without bleeding me. What a jam probably never would have given it a chance without y'all. Also, just wanted to say I love hearing the technical stuff you guys bring up. I'm not a musician and will never claim to be able to pick up nuances of instrumentation, so it's cool to hear you guys that know their stuff break it down. I don't have anybody to talk to about Metallica or metal in general, so having y'all show is a ton of fun. Have a good one, Drew. Thank you, Drew. I consider maybe my life's highest vocational calling to have been opening Metallica fans' eyes and ears across the whole world for the last six and a half years to the deep, deep uh, sonic 
and lyrical merits of the load era. It's just been, I don't know, like a spiritual mission for me that uh, I'm happy to carry the flag for. They're still to this day, two of my favorite albums of all time. Curious albums, albums that any other band would have put out in the 90s would have been their best albums. But of course, Metallica had already put out, I don't know, how many masterpieces came before Load and Reload. I mean, I would consider Lightning a masterpiece because of the songs, but I could see an argument that they didn't re- release their first masterpiece until Puppets. Okay. But then Justice is a masterpiece. And Black Album is a masterpiece. So three masterpieces before Load and Reload. I mean, what other band has done that stuff, dudes? Only the greats. Only, I mean, they're in the company. There's probably less than 10. The Beatles. U2. I mean, that might be it. The Beatles and U2 might be it. In my opinion, of course. I'm hearing in my mind's eye suddenly the screeching of tires as people are crashing their cars into bridge abutments at the audacity of that claim. But it is how I feel. Thank you, Drew. And man, keep that load fire burning, baby. It's rewarding upon multiple listens because I've described it this way before. The load and reload albums to me paint a world. There's so much atmosphere in the sound of those albums and in the the sort of nebulous, you know, personal mining of James's lyrics, that if you close your eyes and reach your hands out, you can almost touch the world you're in when you listen to those albums. And that is a hard thing to achieve. And it's something that just gets richer, like a fine wine, the more you do it. All right. Thanks again, Drew. Van Barnett, friend of the show. I've actually swum in a pool with Van Barnett, if you guys can believe it. He says, hey, guys, it's been a while since I've written in, and I just wanted to tell you the show is still a highlight of my week. I've been listening to all kinds of podcasts since the mid-2000s when I had to download them on my iBook laptop to iTunes and transfer them to my OG iPod. And you guys are two of the best to ever do it. Thanks for all you do. Cheers. Van Barnett, Mount Juliet, Tennessee, New Jersey. Thank you, Van. That means a lot coming from you, uh, homie. Really cool. Hope you're well out there. Send my love to your family and your kiddos. All right, our last email before we dive into this lovely chat with Stefan is from Dennis Avila, who says, Dear Mother, Dear Father Earth, What's going on, guys? Hope all's well with you. Thanks so much for the amazing content you guys put out every single week about the greatest metal band of all time. Although my email today is not about Metallica, I think it's one you guys can answer because this podcast is all about music and you guys are 100% genuine music lovers. So my question is regarding vinyl, and I know you guys are avid collectors yourselves, and I wanted to get your perspective on a situation I'm in. I've been collecting vinyl for a little under three years now. Recently, I've found myself in a little bit of a rut. I feel like my love for vinyl isn't as strong as it once was. I feel like it gets harder and harder to sit down at the turntable, listen to a record front to back, and really appreciate the beauty of listening to music in its purest form. Vinyl prices are more expensive than ever, and I find that collecting and listening to records is turning more and more into a chore. I also feel like my collection has come to a bit of a standstill because I have all the essential records I love and all the other records I want are rare or super expensive. With all that being said, I was wondering if you guys have found yourself in this type of situation. And if you have, how did you get out of it? I guess you can say I want to revive my love for vinyl. I want to be able to appreciate music and the joy of being able to own, hold, digest, and listen to an album how it should be listened to. Thanks so much, guys. Keep up the great work. Clint, congrats on your recent gig with Morgan at the Royal Albert Hall. I'm sure it kicked ass. Cheers, fella. Much love. Dennis from San Antonio, Texas, New Jersey, Never Never Land. Man, I really appreciated this, this conundrum, Dennis. And by the way, thank you for the uh, the sweet message. The Royal Albert Hall show with Morgan. 
Uh, for those of you who don't know, me and Morgan did an acoustic tour of the UK. We got to play Royal Albert Hall. It was a dream come true, of course. Swirling images of you know the Beatles and Bob Dylan playing while the Beatles are in the crowd, and you know Elton John doing eleven nights in a row there, and you know just all the great music made there. The Police, I mean, it's endless. You know, being stuck with vinyl. So I think I think there's two things going on in this email that I'm reading. I think there's, I think you can get stuck getting excited about music, which is its own separate thing, and then that can also blend into what I think the second thing is, which is feeling like you're kind of losing a little bit of the passion for the the vinyl part of it. And, you know, I got to say that struck me. I haven't really thought about it. But yeah, here's one of the issues with vinyl becoming prominent again in commerce is, yeah, it takes some of the joy out of it because everything gets expensive. You know, the market changes, it becomes fashionable. And then, you know, what it used to be before it caught back on, which don't get me wrong, I'm glad it caught on. I think the vinyl resurgence has been spiritually very good for the world. But like anything, the you know, everything changes. And that's a tough part of being alive. But everything changes. Nothing stays the same. Uh, even the nice things. And what used to happen was there was this sense of, especially if you were fortunate enough to travel, which I have been, is there was this sense of finding something in the wild. Like finding a... I remember at, for years, there was no reissue of Obscured by Clouds by Pink Floyd, this sort of really underappreciated Pink Floyd album that really is the first body of work that signifies their move towards what would become the, the 70s masterpiece run, right? Dark Side of the Moon, uh, Wish You Were Here, Animals, The Wall. There's a record called Obscured by Clouds. You couldn't find it. And every record store I went to, I'd immediately go to the P's. Whereas if, you, if they have Obscured by Clouds, and I would have paid, I don't know, if an expensive used record at that time would have been like 45, 50 bucks. And now you can just buy the reissue for, I don't know, thirty nine ninety nine. And that takes something out of it. It really does. Now, if you started collecting three years ago, I'm not sure if that's enough time to have really experienced the landscape change. I've been collecting vinyl since 2005, right? So almost 20 years. But that's really just the vinyl problem. I can see like it being a little oversaturated and being expensive and then not having the joy of finding something used in the wild, that's gone too because everything good's been picked over, it feels like. Plus, you've got the, you know, before before the resurgence really happened, a lot of these places closed because people weren't buying shit. So you got stores closing, you've got a, then you've got a resurgence happening. So the ones that stayed alive are getting a lot of attention. People are going to, people are just already combing through all, it feels like all the good stuff's gone. So then you're left with just buying reissues, which are, are indeed very expensive. In terms of like the tactile experience of like wanting to sit down and listen to a record front to back, I think there's two things happening there. I think number one, there's a war on your time. And I think that, you know, I think that if <laughs> we aren't destroyed by AI, that they're going to study this time where, I mean, it's almost like we're in an experiment with screen time. And it is definitely changing our ability to sit, to be patient. It's changing our ability to wrestle with material. Because not only are we in like an instant gratification situation where everything can be handed to us at all times, all at once, I think we're also easier to offend than ever. We're, we're just more victimized than ever. So I think it's like, I want it now. And if I can't have it now, I'm going to be, I'm a victim, you know? And that just tends to warp how we engage with things that take time. And it's not even a look at me. I, I'm guilty of it too. I mean, we are all being, um, we are all being used in this way by 
corporations, by screens, by algorithms. They are exploiting um, biological responses to this stuff with dopamine and endorphin releases. And they're, they're designing it in a way to keep us engaged without really giving us any nutrition. And what's the antidote of that? The antidote of that is watching a long movie that's challenging. Go watch one of go watch one of these three-hour Scorsese films, where he's asking you to basically wrestle with huge themes of life. Would anyone argue he's one of the masters of filmmaking? And no one wants to watch The Irishman. You know, people can hardly get through a Marvel film now. What's the, what's the another antidote? Another antidote is to take a challenging record like The Wall, uh, or like Injustice for All. Put it on the turntable. Wrestle with it. Deal with it. Listen to it. Don't listen to it while looking at your phone. What's another antidote? Just sitting outside without a screen. Just listening to the wind blow. When's the last time you did that? When was the last time you woke up and didn't immediately look at your phone? Something to think about. And it's easy to pontificate about and be morally sanctimonious about, well, this way is better, that way is better. I don't know if it's better. I don't know what's right or wrong. I don't even know if you can categorize what I'm talking about in terms of what's right and what's wrong. But I do know that I've experienced both because I'm of an age where, you know, I didn't, I didn't experience the ubiquity of the internet until I was 15 or 16. So I did a lot of time as, and a lot of time as a music lover, you know, in the bygone days of just wrestling with physical media and, and, and not having the resources to just listen to whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted to, I had to listen to the deep cuts on Use Your Illusion 2. You know, I had a cassette tape. So if I wanted to get back to Locomotive, which is my favorite gun song, I had to listen to my world. Okay? If you want to talk about Use Your Illusion 1, you know, I had to get through whatever. Uh, there's really no bad songs on that album, but let's just say Dead Horse. If I wanted to get right back to Live and Let Die, I got to burn through Dead Horse. Let's kick it back to Appetite. If I wanted to get back to Paradise City, I had to listen to, you know, Anything Goes. And then those songs become your favorite songs. You know, movies need to be watched more than once. You know, a movie like The Godfather ran in the theater for over a year. And it was just the, it was the conversation. It was the water cooler conversation. It's what people were talking about. Everyone had a sense of, they were watching the same thing at the same time. When was the last time that happened? The Sopranos? Game of Thrones? Entire ecosystems of shows go by. Years, eight, nine seasons. Shows I've never even heard of that were watched by millions of people. There's a fragmentation of culture and that makes it harder to sit down and listen to stuff. The fear of missing out, the fear of, you know, if I don't post a, an artsy picture of my, you know, record player, did I listen to that record? What's become more important? You know, the aesthetic has replaced uh, the meat of what you're doing, right? That's just stuff to think about. I really appreciated the question, Dennis. As far as advice, I would say, listen, man, don't put too much pressure on yourself. Life is full of seasons and you may have a season where you're really excited about music. You have a lot of energy for it, but I don't know what you're going through. I don't know if you got a family or a job, if your job's stressful, maybe you're in school, maybe you just had a breakup. Um, the pizza's in the fridge, baby. And you can't, it's not even something you could force. You know, you have to just let these things come at you and you have to be um, you have to accept when it's hard, when it comes hard, and be curious about it, which you are, which I appreciate. And then you have to just also accept when it's flowing, and you have to just walk through the doors when they open. A really easy gateway for me to get excited about stuff is uh, you need to start plugging back into what you loved when you were a kid, preferably 
12 to 15 years old, 13 being the sweet spot. Find that spark that happened when you were a kid, reinvestigate it. Maybe there's a band you loved when you were a kid you haven't listened to in a while. Go check it out. I'm a 90s kid. I was born in 1983, so I came of age in the 90s. I'm reading a book about the 90s right now by Chuck Klosterman, and that's reigniting all sorts of love for stuff. So, you know, there are tricks you can do, but a lot of it has to to kickstart that engine if that's something you're interested in. A lot of it has to do with getting in tune with where it started. So that would be my advice. And, you know, don't force it, dude. The records aren't going anywhere. That's what's beautiful about it. I tend to wait until things cool off before I get into them, you know? Uh, Billie Eilish, Taylor Swift, whatever the new shit is, Ghost, whatever the new thing is. I t- there's something in me, I don't know what it is, where I tend to go, ah, it'll happen when it happens. And then it does. And you don't have to be on anyone's timeline but your own. And then when it does happen, you'll feel grateful for it. The lean seasons make you grateful for the abundant ones, right? Tale as old as time. And I do appreciate you sharing that with me. I hope that anything I said was helpful. And enough of my crap, all right? I want to get into this Stefan Shirazi conversation. Is Once again, it's very beautiful. I mean, he's such an interesting guy. Um, I mean, I could really talk to him for a long time about a lot of things, not even including music. I did my best to stay out of his way and to let him show us uh, his inner life. He was insightful as usual about Metallica and really about a lot of things in life. And uh, I'm going to come back at the end and say goodbye to everybody. But um, And you're going to hear a commercial real quick for the Patreon. We're going to take a quick little break. And uh, consider joining it if you want to, if you want to sign up for Metal Tales or if you want all the free stuff over there, or if you just want to say thanks for the show. And then we are going to hear from Stefan. I'm excited for you to spend an hour with him. Uh, I thank him for his time, for his generosity. And I'll come back and say bye at the end. So without further ado, uh, here's a Patreon commercial and then our friend Stefan Shirazi. Hey everyone, Clinton Ethan here, and we want to tell you about a little thing called Patreon. Patreon is an easy and interactive way to support the people who make the things that you love. For as little as five bucks a month, you can ensure that Metal Up Your Podcast can continue to grow in quality and content. That's equivalent to a cup of coffee or a beer once a month. Not only is it easy and affordable, but we've made it a priority since day one to give back to our Patreon community. We've given away deluxe box sets, rare vinyl, black and whiskey, concert tickets to SM2 and Slane Castle, all four of our Cover Our World Black and EPs, 26 quarantine covers, and Lunar Satan demos, invitations to exclusive Zoom happy hours, the ability to ask our guests like Jay Weinberg of Slipknot, Lizzie Hale, and members of the Metallica crew your very own questions, and eligibility for our Metal Tales series where you can be a guest on Metal Up Your Podcast and tell us all about a notable Metallica show you've been to. Subscribe to Patreon today and immediately get access to years worth of bonus content. Thank you for supporting the people who make the things that you love. Peace. Adios. I can't talk about it anymore. It's giving me a headache. Here, take two of these. Ah, new print. Little. Yellow. Different. Last time we chatted, if you can believe it or not, was December of 2020. That's how long ago it was, which feels like another lifetime. Well, it quite literally was another lifetime because then came early, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, it's things yeah. went really crazy. Yeah. I know. I feel like it prematurely, I feel like two things have prematurely aged me, being a father and COVID lockdown times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> took years off my life. I was thinking, I went and revisited our convo uh, mm. that we had a few years ago, and I mistakenly referred to you as Stefan a few times. 
Oh, really? <laughs> and that's because, uh, and you very jokingly and graciously corrected me, but I say that a lot because one of my favorite bands, which a lot of people in the podcast will uh, are annoyed by, it's a little drinking game, is my, one of my favorite bands is Dave Matthews Band, and they have a bass player named Stefan Lassard. It's funny, the Dave Matthews Band, of course, the, the most I can tell you about the Dave Matthews Band is the, uh, every, you know, the urban legend of the bus um, yeah. Yeah, that parked on the bridge. And, Poop Kate. It uh, decided to... Uh, to Dump the contents of, of the loo over the bit. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me uh, or, or Dave Matthews or any of it, but uh, you can get somewhere with that, but it's crazy. Yeah. I was going to ask if you, if you were familiar with the band, if you were a fan at all, and if you, what do you think of, what do you think about the idea of guilty pleasures? Are there band like, do you think that there's music you should be embarrassed to like? I kind of, I kind of don't buy into it. That's an age thing, isn't it? Let's be honest. Guilty right. pleasures is something when you're in your twenties and thirties, you there's things you want to keep secret because you're so busy trying to sound cool, right? right. You want to be cool, yeah. But uh, I'm not that age anymore. I'm in my fifties, so uh, I don't care. As a matter of fact, I, I somewhat revel in you know declaring my love of bands that some people would be uh, grossly offended by. I, I would suspect. I mean, I was never that quiet about bands I liked. You know, I mean, it was never a thing, but Frankie Goes to Hollywood was always a favorite of mine. I mean, there's this also ABBA was always a favorite of mine, mm. you know, as well. Um, so, I mean, there's, yeah, I, Dave Matthews Band, that would be close to a guilty pleasure for me if I liked them, but yeah. I don't like them. I, right. I can't, I can't wrap my head around it. And, and look, he's a lovely bloke. I mean, seriously, I do, I do know this. I've seen him. You know, in action in close quarters a few times, and he's doubtless a, a righteous human being. But you know, it stops for me when he plugs in. Bless him, he <laughs> <laughs> really does. I'm sorry, it's just the way it is. Are there bands that you like now openly that that your 25 year old self would have maybe scoffed at? Oh, let me think. That's a great question. Oh, there's got to be right. Yeah, I've got to say, I, I sort of like a lot more Limp Biscuit than I did back in the day I, I absolutely despised them and uh, and i i realized that same that's because number one i just thought he was a tosser uh fred durst which uh, in in and of itself is is an easy thing to say when you've never met someone right um and what they present of themselves may not necessarily be who they are we all know that with the creative arts right so uh i sort of blocked myself from listening to them uh, for a long time and then you know about 15 years ago or so i started to realize you know it's the breakfast cereal of breakfast right it's like the i don't know it's like the rice krispies of breakfast right i mean you're not going to get much nutrition but it tastes good at the moment that you're consuming it right and that's kind of li- for me that's what limp biscuit are and so yeah i i don't mind a bit of the biscuit and if you got me to say that like you know when they were raging i would have told you to to go do one for sure yeah, and same. refuse. Yeah. Oh, really? You're the same with them? Yeah. I Well, you know, I'm, I'm 39. So, you know, when I was in high school, when they were happening, there were other things happening that I thought were cooler. Definitely, yeah. you know, it was definitely uncool to yeah. like them. And I was probably scoffing at them. And these days, you know, if like Rearrange comes on the radio or like, you know, their, their cover of Faith, the George Michael cover, I'll yeah. turn it, I turn it up. I think it kind of rips. I think it's awesome. They did a brilliant cover of Thieves. 
uh, Ministries Thieves. Okay. They did a great cover of it. It's like, I mean, a, a, a cover that I like so much. I was, I once played it 10 times in a row on a drive. I just couldn't stop listening to it. Wow. Just such a good version with the way that they have, they have that sort of like snap bounce in their, in their riffs. And yeah, that song Thieves by Ministry has that kind of, it's got that potential and they, they, they unlocked it. So, yeah, that's a guilty pleasure. I think, you know, another weird one. I, I mean, look, these are all heavy, right? So these aren't really guilty. So I'll give you, I will say that when Iowa came out, mm-hmm. the Slipknot album, mm-hmm. I just sort of, again, I turned to it because I, th- I turned away to it because I was like, you know, everyone's saying to me that this is better than Slayer and such and such, which again, is just such a stupid comment. I mean, they're two different bands. Yeah. But it only took me a couple of years after that to get into that record. But if when Iowa came out, you'd have told me, you know, wow, you're gonna love this. I'd have been like, not a chance. It's right. shite, but it isn't. It's 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 a great record. I mean, it's a great record. It's- I, I think all the time about how you you sometimes just have to be in the right place to receive music. I didn't get into Dylan until I was maybe 34 or 35, like really late. <laughs> and then I don't know how you feel about Dylan, but I've. It's like when you when you when the yeah. door gets cracked open for whatever reason, you can go deep. It's a pretty deep well, and. It just took, it just, I had to kind of be at the right place for it. I think a lot of music's like that. I agree with that. I mean, I think with Bob Dylan, uh, so my parents were hippies, right? So I was brought up by my, my father was Iranian. Uh, my mother was Irish. They met in London. I was born in London and they, they were, they were hardcore hippies. So I, I went, I, I was brought to the Isle of Wight when I was uh, three years old. So I was, ex- whether I like it or not, I was exposed to, I was the Doors, um, Hendrix, you know, all of those. I mean, actually quote unquote saw them but of course i didn't i don't remember uh but bob dylan was a huge favorite of both of them as mm. he was for many people of their ilk and i guess continues to be now right so my vision of dylan is always there's that as a poster of him that used to sit above my crib and it was of him with his it wasn't a fedora it was like a cowboy hat and he was just kind of leaning in his big face leaning in with a smile on it and so i just that face is ingrained in me i just can i mean you mentioned bob dylan so it clicks immediately right and i couldn't fucking stand him oh, i couldn't stand the music because i just i i just it did nothing for me hmm. and then one day the blood on the tracks record hit because i remember my dad talking about how much he loved it and he used to have this thing that he wanted it played at his uh, uh desolation row he wanted played at his funeral which never happened um because he then changed his mind but i i got into that record and i was like wow Okay. And so I went back and, and investigated, but yeah, uh, absolutely. It's situational, but so much, whether we like it or not, uh, situational, yes, but so much of enjoying and admitting you enjoy music is actually just social confidence, you know? So it's so much of it is how confident are you to be you hmm. as opposed to be tribal, right? So right. one of the things I'll say, I, I mean, I mean, to drag you off the Dylan thing for a minute, if I can, one of the things that happened when I was quite young, uh, 11, 12 or whatever, I really got into Scar, really got into the the two-tone thing through a couple of friends. And, you know, and at the same time, I love Motorhead and I love David Bowie and I love the the Stranglers. So I actually, you know, grew up liking a lot of music. And, and one of the great things about Motorhead shows and Motorhead audiences at the, that time in London, late 70s, early 80s, there were all sorts of people there. I mean, obviously a lot of headbangers, but there are a lot of like killing joke type punks. There were, yeah, anyone was welcome. 
Yeah, and that was one of the things that being a Motorhead fan, Motorhead wasn't heavy metal or hard rock. It was Motorhead was the genre. Right. That was what it was. And so you could show up, you know, and if you said that you liked the specials as well, nobody was going to kick your head in, you know. It's so there's a little bit of confidence there, you know, in that. Um, but I probably I probably kept quiet about ABBA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dancing Queen probably didn't make it into the playlist with your buddies at that time. Not with my buddies, actually, but yeah. You're so right, though, like tying it into actual just self-confidence and not being afraid. Yeah. I like that you use the word tribal, too. I mean, that's such a, especially in this moment, especially in the States, I feel like having the freedom and the courage to break away from that is like really important, kind of a lost art. And it's, it's weird because when you're young, it's like you need it. You need a tribe. You need to find your people. That's kind of how you gain confidence. But at some point, I do think you have to be able to walk away from it if it's not serving you anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think you also have to recognize, and this goes actually politically, societal, life-wise, whatever, uh, but let's stick to music for now. I've, I've really got into this idea in my head of visualizing Venn diagrams, your own personal Venn diagram. I mean, the Venn diagram to me when I was a kid was another one of these stupid fucking things. It's like, what, what the fuck's the circles? And who gives a fuck? I don't care. Uh, but now I'm like, oh, wow. This is like kind of a philosophical tool. Sure. You know, most things in life will intersect with your Venn diagram. Somewhere in your Venn diagram, you'll intersect with it. So everyone's musical taste somewhere intersects with rock music, right? Sure. Everyone's. I don't care. Uh, you know, e even classical music, you could argue, if you want to argue back through the more quote-unquote loud and rambunctious composers, you know, and, and, and orchestrators that, you know, rock right quote unquote even politically i think and sociologically we all basically want the same things right we all basically want to look out for each other and 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 you know freedom and and not be oppressed by a small gang of incredibly over wealthy people uh, and then it just becomes if you can resist divide and conquer right so I think musically, it maybe becomes the same thing. Can you resist being divided and conquered by, well, you can't fucking listen to that. You're a heavy metal fan. Right. Well, you can't listen to that. You're a, you're alternative. You know, well, you can't listen to that. You're a hip hop fan. You couldn't possibly listen to, to rock. So you, you see where I'm going with this. Oh, yeah. My Venn diagram intersects with everything. There's a little bit of all of it. Same. And, uh, and uh, yeah, and, and, and sure, I'm a lot more confident speaking out about it i mean the fact i've been writing about a whole bunch of bands since i was 15 16 probably doesn't hurt you know do you feel like the work you've done when you you know i think about this all the time like doing music professionally and how that has in a way even podcasting about music that i love how it in a way does tend to warp and warp might not be the right word because it has a negative connotation but how it does get inside of how you enjoy music i was like of course we do it because we love it i can't imagine doing anything else but there is something different about playing a Pink Floyd song, you know, when I hear another brick on the wall on the radio, I don't hear it the way I heard it before I played music. Now when I hear it, I hear the music because I know how to play it or because I know how they recorded it or I know how David Gilmore composed the solo. Hmm. It's just changed it for me. I mean, that must happen with you, with your work. I was always intrigued more than anything with the atmosphere around an artist when they create. What motivates that process of creation? What you know, what psychologically, intellectually is behind what they're doing emotionally. I mean, those were the things I was interested in. So that never really, I mean, that sort of developed as a teenager, right? It developed. I mean, I got, I, obviously I was a huge Motorhead fan. 
So the first interview I ever did was with Lemmy, right? right. And I don't know if I've told you this story. I can't remember. Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful story because it's yeah. such a yeah. small gesture for him, but it kind of set a course for you. Yes. So, so, you know, and just for people who haven't heard, and I'm not going to recap the whole thing. The bottom line is I interviewed Lemmy when I was a school kid and he gave me a whole bunch of time and a not inconsiderable amount of alcohol as well, I should say. But, uh, (laughs) but I mean, it certainly continued to open my, uh, you know, my thought process when I listened to music, I was like, wow, I can go here, I can go there. And then when, you know, the more people answered these questions I had and the bigger those names got you know, the more uh, encouraged encouraged I was and the more exciting it became, right? So, I mean, if suddenly, like, I mean, David Bowie was there answering my questions, like told, I was told not to ask him questions about his solo career because this is for Tim Machine. Hmm. But I found a way to ask him, you know, about his solo career by refracting the lyrics from the Tim Machine project and even the composition of it through his solo work. And he went for it, he totally went for it. And he, and he, and, and he was happy to do it. And he told me afterwards, like, you know, he said, hey, he said, that was really, that was really great, you know, good, great work. And I mean, when David Bowie says that to you, you, you pay attention. And it got me in the door within 10 years later, you know, James Brown was another one. It's like, I had all these, it's like all these ideas, like, wow, like, what, how did this happen? Like, how did James Brown happen? It's like, well, I'd love to, I'd love to know what the first sound he ever heard was that made him want to move. Like, what was it? And, and I got the chance to ask him. And, you know, in the the situation I had, they said to me, if he likes you, you could be in there for a couple of hours. If he doesn't like you, you'll be out of there in 10 minutes. He'll make it very clear. And I asked him and he just gave me this fantastic answer about being in the woods in the South when he was a little boy and like a bumblebee, like buzzing around his head. And he really remembered that making him like move all over the place, move. and And then he went into some sort of weird sort of weird almost like an incantation or i couldn't really make out what he was saying until i transcribed it and then at the end he just said and that's how i learned to dance and he said and i like i like your questions englishman uh, you could stick around and i was like fuck yeah i was like pass the test so you know whenever you hear that yeah it gets very exciting to keep on going can you tell when you're interviewing someone whether it's james brown or, or bowie or whoever I got to imagine they do so many pressers that they can probably sense that when they're talking to someone who who really knows their shit and who actually is interested and that makes them come alive. I mean, I imagine that must be a good feeling to see that yeah. click for an artist. It, was there ever an interview where you were dismissed quickly? Like what sticks oh. out to you is like, uh, what's one, what's one, <clears throat> and you can decide how gnarly <laughs> you want to go, but what's one that just for whatever reason didn't, didn't work well? Uh, I'll answer the two parts. I'll answer the first bit of the question you asked, which is yes. I, I mean, I can absolutely tell when someone's into it or not. But the way the way I do my interviews is 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 sort of a little different, I think, to to most in terms of I don't go in with questions. I go in with joggers, like jogging points, like notes, the places I want to hit, and I try and make it as conversational as possible. Which, ironically, in this day and age, has become trickier because most people want things now 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 they want quick short sharp and i like to get into a conversation and i like my interviews to be conversational your interviews tend to breathe you know they tend to breathe more Uh, yeah it's interesting we're an interesting time culturally where i'm not sure people want to breathe so much rather than sprint and like you know get deep breaths at the end i'm not sure but i I, this is what i do and this is how i do it so but to you know to address that part of the question yes i can tell uh yeah of course there have been moments where people have just looked at me and been like uh, who the fuck are you and what the fuck is this and uh one of them um one of them was ginger baker uh, when he was in masters of reality and uh 
you know, I sat down to, to Chris Goss was really enthusiastic about him being a part of masters and was really excited and was excited that I was going to talk to him and so on. And I sat down and this is where the conversational bit, I think, you know, didn't work for him because I, I can't remember. I gave him, you know, a little bit of the old hello and bubbly 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 And then he, he listened to this and he just looked at me and went, hmm, when did they invent you, your kind? Ah, <laughs> oh, yes. He said, I remember in the sixties, he said, when, where frustrated musicians he said nothing to say, just waffling on. And he said, you do know you've just answered your own question. Hmm. And I was so, so, so struck and dumbstruck. I turned the tape off. I paused the tape recorder. I said, listen, I said, if you don't want to be here, that's fine. I said, let's just call it quits now. I said, and be done with it. Wow. I said, but Chris is really excited about you being in the band. He's really excited about me talking to you. I'm really up for doing this, but if you're not, don't worry about it. Let's just call it quits and be done with it. And he, and he, and he backed down. He was like, you know, okay, no, you're right. And, and he sort of backed down. And so I turned the tape back on and we carried on. Wow. But that was pretty rocky. I had a really shit interview with Meatloaf, I remember. And that was <laughs> having spent three days chasing him around the Midwest. Um, hmm. Me and a photographer who I used to work with a lot, uh, Mark Lealoha, is still a really good friend and we were doing this for Kerrang and we was back in the early 90s when you know you had to like send your, your copy like you know by fax right and someone had to input it other end if it was tight time and and we were literally running up against the 36 hour this magazine is going to be on the printing presses barrier and he hadn't done the interview um and so when he but when we finally did get around to doing it three days later I, you could tell he would rather have been, I don't know, filing his nails, picking his ass. I don't know anything but talking to me. And by that point, I was so pissed off. I couldn't muster any real enthusiasm for it other than thank fuck we're going to do this finally. Let's just do it. So I have to say I was probably a miserable piece. I should go back and read that again, actually, and see how if it's useless or not. Would that have been for the Bad Out of Hell 2 cycle? Was he promoting Bad Out of Hell 2? You know what? I can't remember. It sounds about right. What year did that record come out? Uh, it was early 90s, yeah. But I would do anything for love, but I won't It do must that. have been Bad Out of Hell 2. So, yeah, it must have been. But I was just like, no, you know, no, no interest. But, you know, one of the people that I found my you know, my style really clicked with was, uh, was, you know, I did a couple of interviews there with, uh, two, three interviews with Kurt Cobain mm. and they always went really well. And he was always really open. And I talked to him about it when I saw him, when we weren't interviewing, if I ran into him and he was always very friendly and actually said to me, he said, I know that when you're asking a question and you know, you get the answer, you'll run the whole answer because you're interested in the context. He said, but I'm tired of being taken out of context with my answers so many times. So some people do get it. And of course, look, it has to be said, I mean, probably the biggest sponsors of all and the people who've completely supported and understood, you know, what I try and do with my conversations and interviews are Metallica. I mean, that goes without saying. So, you know, and, and power to those, to those four men, because they're, those four are the people who are still the reason I'm doing it. I'm sure for them, you know? Well, I, I mean, I reached out to you a few weeks ago because I was reading those new ones that you did and they just, yeah. you know, they're so good. They really are just like what a real fan would ask. Right. And you know, when they go and do, and it's not just them, any other, or we can talk about other artists, but like when they go trot out a record or a cycle or a tour, even when they're on people with people like Stern or, you know, Joe Rogan mm -hmm. or Mark Maron, you know, I get it. They're, they've got a they've got a product to sell, and they just want to get through it. They want to make sure they do a good job. It's hard mm -hmm. to it's hard to get down to it with people. Yeah, and with you, with the proximity, with the, you, you have like a great advantage. They trust you. They know you. But man, it's just so refreshing to read. I don't know a lot of bands that have that. Do you know of any other bands that have 
an in-house no. thing like that? I don't. I know Iron Maiden do their own magazine still, and I believe that, you know, but I don't know what their interaction is. I know that you two used to. I don't think they do anymore, right? Pearl Jam, I think, used to. So I don't think anybody still has the the level of interaction or at least maybe consistent interaction. I mean, the the element that makes it work for us, I think, so well is that, you know, uh, (laughs) like the splinter, you could never get out of your foot. I've been in in their collective foot since 1984 in one way or another. So so we know each other and we know how each other thinks and works. And I think at times like this, when we're all maybe a little older and uh, maybe a little wiser, maybe, you know, you're just living a little differently. There is a lot of unspoken historical knowledge that helps you maybe draw out an extra five or 10% that others wouldn't get and maybe give you the courage to ask a few questions that others wouldn't, you know, in, in the context of time. So I think that's where the history really helps play through and play out, especially when, you know, if you're going to talk to James about his lyrics, um, you know, history doesn't hurt that conversation at all. Um, And of course, the the other thing is I'm still genuinely fascinated. I mean, I'm I'm genuinely fascinated by, by the the lyrical journey and, and by the, 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 you know, to an extent, the personal journey that, that bears those lyrics. So that certainly helps keep it interesting, you know, for, for for everyone yeah i mean it well and this album seems really personal <clears throat> more personal than usual i mean there was almost a sense where you had like almost like a healthy reverence going into it you had a little preamble about it that i thought was i did yeah. it was very interesting and yeah it says a lot about you when that stuff comes out for sure yeah well I mean, you mentioned bob dylan earlier and and you know i'll posit nick cave here as well hmm. um I, I think those two gentlemen are revered as modern poets uh, yes. right as modern yeah. l- lyrical giants i think james deserves the same respect and the same credit uh because there are you know tens of millions of people maybe to get cliche about it mostly men who are emotionally stunted who have been turned into emotionally aware people via his journey i mean that might be a little dramatic but i think you know what i'm getting at absolutely um, and of course look i know there are millions of, of, of female fans as well i'm not saying there aren't i'm just saying i think men generally tend to get tarred with the brush of you know you can't express your emotions very well you know it's like fuck off i can't <laughs> you know it's like what do you mean i can't express my emotions <laughs> but i think that james um uh, you know every time he speaks on this stuff and all those every time he pours it out in his lyrics it, it does give an, a whole slew of people this moment to maybe sit and think about their own journey and consider their own choices and their own lives I mean, much like people go to therapy for, much like, I suppose, my parents' generation listened to Dylan. You know, I mean, it's the same thing. So I think he deserves that respect, and I think he should be revered in that way as well. I agree. I I mean, even as far back as when you started working with him in 84 with Lightning to put Fade to Black on an album after basically inventing thrash metal. And I know Mm -hmm. they took a lot of heat for that. And then the thread goes all the way through from one to nothing else matters to unforgiven and all that yeah and yeah i mean the demographic of people that like hard music is probably going to attract men and boys that need someone to remind them that they can be vulnerable be sensitive that they can talk about mental health i know he's kind of been talking about that we're back to venn diagrams again right i mean everyone's intercedes everyone has had some hardship in their life right everyone has hard times in their life you know 
everyone needs someone to listen to them sometimes and validate them um all of those things and, and, and we all do right and yeah. one of the things that i think you know james does with his lyrics in juxtapose of this position because of course he's seen as this big rock star and so in juxtapose of that he helps open that up and that's a huge thing and metallica do as well in their own way but you know we're, we're, we're talking about his lyrical approach and what he does very much so and it's it's such a huge thing and i think what's really changed with him uh from and i i think you got the drift of it in that interview is that he has finally seems to have found some comfort or a level of acceptance i should say with the fact that this is this is kind of what he's here to do right the responsibility maybe it's beyond him it's not his choice yeah it's not he doesn't have a choice this is his quote unquote this is his gift or whatever and he has that that gift and he's able to use it to the power of good and it's 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 nothing it's nothing to shy away from or to try and run away from you you have to find a way of making it work in your life to where it can be done and i th think that's where we're at and i think it's it's working well and i think that that's why he's enjoying the shows as much as he is and that's why i think this set of lyrics in particular are probably some of the best he's ever written uh, as blunt and as harsh as they are yeah i agree I loved, I guess it was about a year ago when they were promoting the Black album, um, The Blacklist, when Elton John gave him, like, basically gave him props yeah. as, like, as a great songwriter. Could tell it meant a lot to James. I'm a huge Elton John fan. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think a lot of guys that are in his position, I think Chris Cornell's the same. I think a lot of those guys that are in, like, hard rock bands, they don't get the songwriting credit as much as they should. You know, because they're they're a part of a group. I mean, I don't really know why. What do you think? Like, no one really talks about Chris Cornell. I don't know if you're a big Soundgarden fan, but I think if you, much like James, if you kind of peel back those songs and the imagery and the aesthetic, the songs are just great. Which is, yeah, I feel I mean, that way about James's stuff. Yeah, I I did some stuff with Soundgarden in the early '90s, right when they were super. Yeah, well, they, it was um, Bad Motorfinger era, and. Uh, Mm -hmm. which I think is a fantastic record. Right, outshine. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, Searching for My Good with My Good Eye Closed is oh, just yeah. a, a great song. I mean, a great song, you know. Yeah, the, I mean, that record's got so many good songs. But yeah, Chris Cornell was another guy who I think was a lot shyer and a lot more insecure than people knew and was probably in a lot more sort of internal back and forth uh, than anyone would have would have gathered you know i certainly remember thinking wow he's a bit he's a bit aloof you know and i slowly but surely learned that it wasn't aloofness it was it was a, a discomfort and shyness with the position he found himself in versus you know whatever other insecurities he was harboring and you know it's one of the great misfortunes of, of the creative process i, I think that uh, I've thought about this a lot and I think it stretches in across all walks. It seems like true genius comes with a very heavy price hmm. and it's whether you can get ahead of the price before the price gets ahead of you. That that's sort of what it feels like. I mean, I'll give you an example as well. I'm Diego Maradona, the soccer player. Uh, I don't know if you know anything about him. I don't. Um, it was a brilliant documentary uh, made uh, by um, Capaldi. I made it. He's the same guy who made the um, he made the Amy Winehouse documentary, uh. and I would encourage you to see it if you enjoy documentaries. You don't have to like the sport, uh, but to watch this person who was basically the best footballer of his generation, but was also, um, uh, you know, just insane. I mean, he was literally nuts. I mean, you know, he was hanging out with Castro in Cuba. He was a deity, a literal deity 
in Napoli. They made little effigies of him and they put them on the dashboard instead of Jesus. I mean, he's still got his murals all over the place. Uh, prodigious drug user <laughs> at his time. You know, just an insane life, an insane career, a man of excesses, of everything. But that's he paid a price, but he was so brilliant, you know. And and again, I, I look at someone like, like, you know, you look at Chris Cornell. I mean, it's a there's a price to pay for that for that genius sometimes you, you hope there isn't and you hope someone can get on top of it and, but they can't always look at amy winehouse yeah right beautiful beautiful singer i mean you think i mean and look look at look at kurt cobain i mean i just you know i i that that death uh was just profoundly upsetting to me um because i absolutely adored nirvana i thought they're brilliant and i thought he was i thought he was brilliant and he had he had that thing you know that's fit. some of some of these people they have that thing when you're around them you can just sense there's something right you can't you can't quantify you can't put it into words and that almost makes it even better but he had something and it was just i knew just like wow he just couldn't such a shame i mean you know yeah it makes me think of um oh several of the guys from that kind of class you know lane yeah. staley uh scott wyland Awful. Lane Staley is a really sad story. Again, I mean, you know, just shrunk. And I think the saddest thing about Lane is that I, I, it really blew me away when I actually saw the year that he passed. I remember thinking, wow, I, I thought he passed years before. Uh. You know, I'd actually almost, got, I'd sort of got the mad season era out of context with his, with his career frame. But you know, I saw Lane at close quarters for for some time as that journey became uh, darker and darker. And it's just, you know, there's there's a shyness, a crippling shyness, and anxiety maybe sometimes uh, in these incredibly gifted performers that none of us ever see because yeah. there's so many masks going up. And so that when I interviewed people like that, and when I do, my I always felt that my my duty to them and my duty to people reading was to try and discuss. The personalities and and the minds, not the shields or products they were using, you know, to mask themselves. Right? right. You yeah. know what I'm saying there. I mean, yeah. you know, bluntly, what I'm saying is, who gives a fuck how many lines someone snorted or or how much of whatever they injected? That that was never important to me. Yeah, like, who are they really under? Who that? are they? What's yeah. the fucking story? I mean, yeah. you know, I remember interviewing Al Jorgensen from Ministry one time, in the late '90s, and he was really i mean I, without getting too graphic I, it was very clear what was going on and where he was at in his life and what drugs he was taking I mean, he literally just you know done some stuff in front of me and i was just like i i, I was like al I, I can't not i can't not say talk about this because it's it's been going it's, it's going on in my eyesight like at least don't you know <laughs> and he accepted yeah, but but he knew and he accepted it. And I, 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 but I, even then I wrote very, very carefully. I was really careful to write about, you know, look, when we all jump around and punch our fist, just one fix and play our air guitars or whatever the, the, the fuck else, that's somebody's life. That's not just a fun song that was big on MTV and we all loved it. You know, it's a real fucking thing and it could really result in the end of someone. Yeah. Th thankfully, and uh, thankfully our, you know, has rebounded and is in, you know, in his, as good shape as, as he's, as he could be and, and doing really well. And I'm really, really delighted to hear that because I think he's, I think he is a, a genius as well. So yeah, somehow we've ended up in this corner, <laughs> this weird space. Well, Hey, I, I love it. I mean, you're, you're yeah, the guest, so you're, you're the guest host this week, so we can talk about whatever. Um, <laughs> I am curious, I'm curious about two things. 
Number one, and they're not totally related, so I don't want to forget one of them, but someone told me one time who's really close to an artist, I can't say who it is, and it doesn't even matter, but it's a famous person that you know sells lots of tickets, has millions of fans, and they said, you know, it would shock you how much fraud syndrome this person has, how much they don't believe they deserve what they have. Right. And they're grateful for it, but they, in the really true like dark night of their soul or their true private combos, they really don't think they deserve it. I'm curious how often, I mean, you can not name or you could say anything you want, but I'm curious how often is that? Like, do you run across that a lot? The f- imposter syndrome, are you familiar with that? The concept of that, I'm sure you are. I mean, it's, it's, it's a phrase I've not heard before, but I've heard the sentiment expressed before. But more than anything, I don't think people say it. I think I can kind of sense it to an extent. Right. Because it's all about insecurity and anxiety. That's what that's about. So I don't even think it's localized to them maybe feeling, you know, well, I don't deserve to be a famous singer. It's like uh, maybe it just stops that I don't deserve. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think there's a lot of really creative, talented people um, who maybe dance on that string, you know? Right. Which to an extent, I don't care what anybody says, we all do. Yeah. So it's all very fine to say them and us. It's not them and us, it's the world. And that's what's really fascinating about right now is right now, the the climate, the social climate and the global climate, I think he's doing uh, he's doing everything to accelerate those um, reactions and emotions in people on a daily basis. So I can only imagine what it must be like for artists, you know, post-COVID going back out there, you know, having had a year and a half or whatever to sit with those anxieties and insecurities and basically battle those amongst other things, you know, like, oh my God, am I ever going to be able to do this again? And, uh, oh, well, I'm back to wondering if I'm really worthy of doing it, <laughs> you know? Right. I think it's pretty common. I, I mean, you know, can, can you, th- more to the point, Clint, can you think of many people who have just looked you square in the eye and said, I fucking deserve everything <laughs> I've got and I am the master? Because I sure can't. It'd be weird. It'd be a weird thing to admit. Yeah, you'd get slated, wouldn't you? That would be an interesting thing. That might be an angle to start taking now, to start (laughs) asking people, do you think, do you really deep down, I should ask somebody, do you really think, even though anxiety, do you think you actually really are all that? Do you deserve it? This is all you? Nobody's going to say yes. Yeah, you kind of can't. That's like you're breaking some sort of social rule. You're a shithead if you say that. Um, Yeah. But okay, my next question that was more tied into the Al thing and not specifically about Al, but you mentioned on and off the record and- what he was doing and you're like hey give, you know go easy on me i can't not write about this right what what is that process like like if you if an artist or or someone you're interviewing is like you're having a very real conversation and then maybe they say hey off the record i want to say something like is it just as simple as that is it just like a verbal agreement for me absolutely and um, even just professionally and ethically in the world of journalism like you know we hear that all the time in the movies and everything like off record are we off record and you can say something more salacious or whatever. Well, first of all, I you know I always thought that rock writers and feature writers and journalism are a slightly different thing. I didn't hold myself to the standards of reporting war in the Sudan, right? So I didn't uh, I didn't like hold myself to the standards of like Bosnian massacres and and you know whatever and, yeah. and, uh, you know Serbian Bosnian massacres and I I didn't feel that it was if someone wanted to go off the record and tell me something deeply personal. I didn't feel I was compromising the integrity of my piece if I didn't include it all the time. And most of the time I didn't. And most of the time when people have asked, uh, have gone off record, it has been 
something deeply personal that is a vehicle to an overall sentiment that I felt outweighed the need for some, you know, personal salacious detail. Right. You know, but this, and this is another problem that I have with a lot of uh, public consumption and public appetite for these things is it is they get hung up on these details. It's like, okay, well, what if someone wants to go off the record and say, well, you know, I did this with this and this, I did, you know, this drug with this person and this person, you know, and what the basic, the biggest story is, and, you know, that was the night that I ended up having this epiphany about how my fucked up childhood interceded with my current insecurity. And that's how I wrote the song, you know, darkness is the prince of mankind or whatever. And, the, you know, that song is maybe the biggest song in rock. Right. So you, mm. what I'm saying is that if I was to include that detail, the detail takes over the full meat of what the actual story is about. Right. It incriminates people who, you know, are sure, maybe they shouldn't be doing this stuff or whatever, but who am I to judge? I don't get to discuss that person's career again more than lightly. Yeah. And nobody actually remembers the fucking point of, of, of the details. They're just like, oh, fuss and such and such, snorted such and such, it's such and such. It's just feeding gossip culture. So absolutely. If it, you know, stuff like that, if someone was goes off record, hundred percent, you know. Yeah, I, I will say on 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 the balance overall, the majority of people did not go off record. They didn't uh, ever prevent me from. You know, there was a book published. Man, I cannot remember what it was called. I think it might have been called something really on the nose, like off the record. And what it, I don't know how they did this. Maybe you can shed light on it. It was famous interviews with people, like the guy from The Strokes, and it was famous shit. And it was the stuff that they didn't put that they did not include. And it was juicy. It was, it wasn't anything that crazy, but it was definitely juicy shit. It was like the guy from Soul, David, uh, the guy from Soul Asylum when he was dating Winona Ryder. It was right. gossip. It was kind of gossipy shit. I mean, it really was fun to read. But how did they get away with publishing that? You'd have to ask them. Maybe they've hit a point in their career where they don't give a fuck. And for to that, I would say good luck to you. If if I mean, really, I have no nothing against it. Not my interest. Not my thing. And you know, someone would some would say that. Well, that's a fucking pussy attitude. You know, you should be. You know, you should be throwing the hard questions at them. To which to which I would say, well, it's really not hard to ask a rock star if they've done any drugs. Oh right, right. Or Boring. if or, or if they've ever got drunk with another famous person, or if they've ever like you know shagged somebody behind their partner's back i mean let's be honest the rock and roll world is littered with these stories so wh why is it important it's just not important and I i'm not interested in that bullshit i'm just not <laughs> you know I, it is it's just all fucking rubbish isn't it i'll tell you a really interesting quick one here if i've got time i was at uh rock in rio in 1991 and judas priest were playing behind guns and roses one night yeah Someone had gone around crossing out the motorbike for that the Halford comes out on, right? When I asked who this was, I was told by someone, I can't remember who, oh yeah, that's Guns N' Roses say that he can't have his bike out because it might upstage them. That became the word, right? Captain Hothead Me was like, fuck this, you know, I, I think it's bullshit. Uh, so, you know, when Guns N' Roses go on stage, you know, we're going to leave uh, the, the gig and I'm going to go to my hotel room and I'm going to have a photograph taken of the TV screen showing the Guns N' Roses show. And I'm going to waffle on about like, you know, how disgusted I was and blah, 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 blah. And I'm not going to stand and support those. By the way, Rob Halford did ride his bike on stage in the end. So, you know, uh, but I was already too far into my, up, up my own ass probably a little bit. 
to an extent. Uh, but about a month later, I got a phone call. I pick up the phone. Hi, who's this? It's Axel. And I just said, fuck off, Lars. And I hung up because I thought Lars was calling me, winding me up. Right. Mm. So I get the call back again and he's like, it's Axel, Axel Rose. And he's like, you know, and he spent like 15 minutes really laying into me about <laughs> this, you know, about this reviewing Kerrang. And he already had a thing as Kerrang. And then he said something. He said, he said, you know, you need to check your fucking facts. And that's what you meant. He said, you could have come and asked me. And I said, hang on a moment. This is the first time I've spoken during the, you know, it's a one-way tirade, right? I said, hang on a minute. I said, what do you mean I could have come and spoken to you? I said, do you have any idea how hard it is to get to you? Like you're, you're impossible to find. Like there's three layers of people between you and whoever. I had to sign a contract if I wanted to interview your guitar player. And even then you then got to own the whole piece and decide what of it. When I said, I said, are you joking? I said, listen, this doesn't make sense. And he stopped and he said, whoa, he said, okay. He said, I hadn't thought about it. I guess, yeah, I guess you're right, really. And then he started asking me questions. And then he kind of unraveled for 45 minutes talking about his life, how fucked it was, how his emotional at that time, I guess he was with Erin Everly and like all this. 25 minutes in to that rant, he said, you're not fucking recording this, are you? I said, no. I said, because I hadn't thought of it. I hadn't thought of recording. I'm just in the middle of this conversation. And he said, you know, because if you're recording this, I haven't done an interview in a year and you could sell it and make a I said, I'm not, I'm not recording it. I'm not doing that. All right. I'm not doing it. So he carried on talking and he was actually super cool uh, at the end of it. And he said, Hey, if you want to come up, we're doing a show to use your illusions, come to the gig. And if you want, you can also come down to LA and see, you know, listen to us doing some of the album. He said, the one thing I ask is you don't do anything for Kerrang. I fucking hate them. And I said, unfortunately, they're the people who are paying my rent right now. So I can't in good conscience accept your offer and go. And he said, okay, well, he said, I'm afraid I can't make the offer then. I said, I totally get it. I said, thank you. And he said, thank you. And that was the last time I spoke to him, but wow, I, I, it's a pretty, pretty interesting story. Very interesting. You know, putting Kerrang in the song, Get in the Ring from those sessions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, but look, again, once you got the chance to actually speak to him properly about something, he was actually very cool. Sweet dude. Yeah, kind of in tune with his trauma, in tune with like, what was difficult about his personality like yeah I, I don't know i mean at that point he was seemed to be running out of control everywhere all i yeah. know is that interaction told me an awful lot um yeah. about him and it also reinforced with me i mean i can't say that i didn't hang up the phone and think wow if i had recorded this i could just turn around i could have turned around to rolling stone and said you know i want x amount and everything but would you have been able to do that? Is that does it work that way if you get a good yeah. scoop or a good story you yeah. can call a yeah. major publication and say you can name a price well, I don't know about name a price. I will tell you that I was offered when Kurt Cobain died, I was offered 20 grand by E television within like three days for my audio cassette of the final interview. It was considered to be the last interview we ever did. And they just called me up and said, you know, we've basically are ready to pay now. Just if you'd send it, I'm like, Abs absolutely not. I said, not a chance. I said, why would I do that? I said, PS, if you want to, if you want, just go and find it on the newsstand or get a back copy and you can read it out on, on air. You know, I was no way, not at all. So, uh, so you did one of this, you did his last interview. Well, it's considered to be, I think there must've been a couple of others since, but I was considered to be the last major interview he did. David Frick did one for Rolling Stone and I did one two weeks later. Uh, and, uh, it was, and it was so crushingly, I was so ugly to me when, when he passed, I actually remember calling David Frick and asking him if he'd had a similar uh, you know, uh, if he'd met a similar Kurt 
that last time as I had, because I think David Frick had also interviewed him uh, you know, at least a couple of other times, because I found Kurt to be probably as balanced as, he'd ever, as I'd ever found him at that time. And this interview is done in late 1993 uh, yeah. on tour. And he seemed as, he seemed as calm and as, as, as composed as I'd ever known him. He actually seemed like he'd found some peace. Uh, and it was really, I suppose, personally and maybe a bit of a, a professional blow to think wow did i miss something but it was it was actually because the first lesson i got in and very sadly in you know you you just don't always know and, and it's nobody's fault you know it's nobody's fault at all nobody should be expected to be able to read that room you know if it's if someone's got trauma of that nature going on they're not going to always send you a signpost you know they're not what would you do if you were in that situation, taking Kurt out of it, maybe just anyone, and you did notice that maybe they were going to be, you know, a danger to themselves or with suicidal ideation or anything? What's the recourse for someone in your position? So this is a very nuanced question. Are you talking as a human being or as a professional? Oh, both. We'll start with professional and then as a human being. Well, as a professional, I would immediately go to that person's management yeah. or that person's uh, representative and say, this may be none of my business, but I feel I need to let you know that I think this, this, and this. I mean, you know, again, <laughs> you know, <laughs> What we think and what are are two completely different things. But if I felt strongly enough that I was witnessing, uh, shall we say, a situation which was descending into trauma and chaos and and ultimately, you know, more ta- mortal issues, I would definitely say something. Absolutely. Yeah. But I mean, I would do that. I do that. I, I mean, I I, I have uh, that's something I've a situation I've found myself having to deal with before. So yeah, um, in life, and I, I look, I think as human beings, we're responsible. You know, if I saw someone on the street who looked like they were, you know, they were in a bad way, I'd find, you know, a policeman or I'd find a healthcare professional and I'd, and I'd point it out or I'd call something or, you know, someone or, yeah, we have a responsibility. Do you still have the tapes from that? Inter- like, do you still keep a, do you have like an archive of your stuff? Got quite a few of them. Uh, I've got probably a few hundred. I don't, unfortunately, I'm a terrible collector and I'm a really, you know, I'm I'm a semi-decent archivist. I've got a print version of everything I ever wrote as a freelancer, and that's a, a hell of a lot of stuff. I've got quite a few tapes, quite a few of them. Uh, the Kurt one is one I actually did get digitized. So, yes, I have that. I got that and I got HR Geiger digitized at the same time. <laughs> did we did we talk about that last time we hung out? We I'm a huge I fan of his. Wow. Uh, of HR Geiger? Yes, that a huge great. fan. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm a huge horror movie nerd, and so the, of course the alien films. But I just love his art in general. I spent an afternoon with him in a in his in his house in the in just outside Zurich. He's got the museums, obviously. Uh, yeah. Um, or the museum, and then he had the bar, and he had several of them. We were actually in his house, which was amazing. It was like two two terraced houses with the middle wall knocked out in between, and it was like a labyrinth of of, of just a labyrinth of corridors it seemed leading into little rooms and everything had his stuff all over the place. It was insane. And I mean, he was actually asking us if he was giving us a tour, you know, and the, the attic was actually his furniture place where he made his furniture. Uh, so that was super light, a lot of light in there, but then everything else, everyone else in the house was dark. And uh, he actually asked apologetically if we wouldn't mind if he didn't show us the basement because that's where his bedroom was. And that's where he likes, then that's where he likes to work. And uh, I was like, no, that's absolutely fine. Honestly, really, it is. And we ended up, I bought a book for him to sign. And honestly, he ended, I left, 
he couldn't give us enough stuff. He gave me a couple of lithographs of the alien that he signed. He gave me some, wow. some galley sheets for the mystery of San Catardo, which was a comic book project he was working on. Uh, and uh, he was so generous with his time as well. Who's the metal guy that's like his PA? Uh, well, there was uh, um, Tom from uh, from Celtic Frost. Was, Celtic uh, Frost. I don't know yeah. if he was his PA, but he's he's certainly his curatorial or curator, um, right? Yeah, his curatorial energy force at the uh, the museum these days. And yeah, because it was he he uh, you know he worked with um, it was a spell two is the cover of Tomegatherium. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, but, uh, that's, that's the union there. Everyone should check his stuff out. I think, what does he call, he calls it like biomechanics is like, yeah. Biomechanoid stuff. Yeah. It's yeah. like humans, but with machines and it's really cool shit. Yeah. This, I mean, the entry point to him is his economic on, uh, that's right. Book. I think that's the one which has got, I think he's got, uh, Lee on the front L I, I think that's the pieces on the front. Might be mistitling it, but, uh, yeah, yeah. You're not going to go wrong. It's, it's incredibly thoughtful. And of course the dead Kennedy's, uh, used uh, used his penis landscape and got them in the, got themselves into tremendous trouble. Uh, wasn't the front cover, of course, but it was still yeah considered uh, vulgar in the eyes of the uh, of I think it was the moral majority at the time, right? If you remember, oh yeah, the Reagan <laughs> the Reagan era. Uh, yeah, didn't yeah, King yeah. Crimson also use? Did King Crimson use him? Yes, as a cover. Yeah. And then Lake and Palmer. And then yeah, El uh, P. Yeah, El P. Crazy. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Good stuff. Um, we could probably talk for an hour about that. So to bring us home a little bit, so you are out, you're out traveling with the band or? Yeah. I drop in and out on, on, on tour as, as and when is necessary. And so right now I'm in the UK, uh, we're in the middle of the stop at download, right. which I, and many people know eternally as Donington. Right. Um, and of course, uh, you know, it's no repeat weekend, right? So it's been one M72 show last night, and there's going to be a completely different set uh, tomorrow night. Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, it's it's seemed the reviews are great for it, for everything we've seen from it. The yeah. two no repeat shows is an amazing idea, a huge treat for fans. Yeah, I, th- I think it's really easy to take them for, for granted, and yeah. I think I'm guilty of doing it as well. But, you know, they never, ever, ever phone in a show. They do not dial a show in. You're not going to, you know, what you get is what you've paid for and then some. They never give you less. They always give you more, which I think is actually quite astounding, um, you know, and they take their careers more seriously, I think, maybe than they ever have in terms of preparation and staying in shape. It's really something to witness. You know, they behave and, and train like a team of athletes and you'd need to on that stage. <laughs> oh, it's man, the, the running around is crazy. I mean, what I would hope is that ultimately – the majority of people going are enjoying what they're seeing and hearing. And that's the important thing. However, however you arrive at the apex of enjoyment, just arrive there. Some people, some people do it, you know, in full health. Others maybe do it with, you know, not, you know, in another way. I don't know. Yeah. It's a pretty impressive physical feat. I mean, it really is. Absolutely. I mean, I, I look at these guys and I'm just like, whoa. <laughs> it's it's something you know so yeah I, it's super exciting and they're breaking out some some really good stuff as well well i'm a huge mid-90s load reload guy and so to oh. see <laughs> to see until it sleeps come back was a huge huge treat king nothing of course so yeah yeah no it's good it's good stuff what's the future for you do you have a patreon you have a thing a place where you write i have a patreon account which is uh which is um a, a currently believe it or not sits at a measly uh i think 
I think 16 people. I just don't promote it. I'm useless to this stuff. I actually am using it as a springboard to get into practice to do a book. So I hold myself to putting up a piece every month uh, where I, I, I reproduce the piece and then I discuss what went into that piece happening. You should absolutely publish a book, 100%. Yeah. I, I, the thing is doing one that number one, I think is going to be um, entertaining and number two is going to uh, keep me interested. You know, right. I mean, I, 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 to your point about like, you know, insecurity, I do, I do find myself like everyone else thinking, well, what's so fucking special about my life? And then I've sort of recently wrapped my head around the fact that, well, yeah, it is pretty, it's pretty weird. I mean, it's pretty cool. I mean, I've been doing this since I was 15, you know, I've done, I've, I've, I've done some pretty cool stuff. So maybe it is okay to talk about it. And ironically, I'll let you into this. And I don't know if this is something that's pertinent or not for, for the pod. If it is, you will leave it in. If not, it isn't. But, you know, my, my mother passed away a year ago. And so I find myself without either of my parents and suddenly curiously, as, as sad as it is, curiously free to engage in, in like really investigating who I am as a person. And I realized that, you know, your parents always re raise you or my parents did to, to be, uh, you know, never speak of yourself and always look out and make sure that everyone else is looked after first. So, uh, I don't want to sound like I'm full of false humility or anything, but I don't like to talk about myself that much. It's very recently that I even started to do an interview, like, you know, chat with you and as we did before and so on. So finally, yes, maybe it is time for a book because I look at the list of people, you know, from Metallica to Massive Attack to, you know, to David Bowie to Keith Richards to, you know, you could go through There's There's a lot of names and then a lot of variety and, and why not? Right. So anyway, if you want a little dip into that, yeah, that's Patreon. That's what I'm using it for. I'll put a link to it in the show and everyone can go support you. I mean, yeah, I mean, I I think you've led a very interesting life. You're also very interesting to talk to. You have very interesting, you know, perspective. So That's because we didn't get to talk about uh, English football and Tottenham Hotspur, which would have bored the pants off everyone, including yourself. So, Well, you know, I was, <laughs> I was just over there on tour and our tour manager over there said, oh, I heard you're into sports because I'm a big NBA fan, big basketball mm. fan. And I was like, okay. Yeah. yeah, I was like, fine. He took me to a, um, he took me to an Arsenal game. Jesus Christ! And it, they lost to Brighton. Oh, and, fucking uh, brilliant! <laughs> Fantastic. That was when the title, the title was fading away. Yeah. Well, if I tell you that my Patreon name is Steffi Spurs, S T E F F Y S P U R S. Spurs is an abbreviation of Tottenham Hotspur. Tottenham Hotspur are Arsenal's biggest rival. Okay. You know, we're, we're North London rivals. And, uh, and I actually do a podcast, a weekly podcast about, about Tottenham. Really? Have you, yes. you ever promote that? I'm really bad at promoting any of my stuff, but, uh, it's well, called do the you game mind is about, no, it's called the game is about glory. We do it weekly, four of us, um, or three of us at any one time, uh, like clockwork. Um, okay. we, we put it out. It's available on every single pod platform we want. And we're fairly chatty. We get into musical stuff. Uh, and sometimes we get, uh, we shout each other down. I actually compared our season to a rather long and miserable dinosaur junior jam to which my, uh, <laughs> my main pod host was just like, I'm not having that. Jay, you know, Jay Mascus is great. And then we were get, going to pondering, uh, you know, what, what artists might have captured previous Spurs seasons. I mean, we, we, we kind of wander off here and there, but we always come back to the point. Um, we, yeah, we've been doing it regularly, uh, you know, nearly two years now. So all right. Well, I'm going to link that as well. And do you do you have a potential title for your book? Have you thought about titles yet? Uh, what would you really? call it? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's. I, I really don't know. I don't know at all. You should call it fraud syndrome. Really? That 
would be interesting. I mean, I, I, I would, if I did, I mean, I did actually think of imposter at one point. Yeah. One thing, one thing that I do think is really important to note here. And I, I believe it's a central ingredient as to why I've remained, uh, you know, working with the Metallica team and camp, I mean, you know, indisputably close. I mean, that goes without saying it's impossible for us not to be, I mean, they are, whether we like it or not, we've known each other so long, it is familial. I mean, we are brothers in a, in a true sense, you know, we've known each other for over 35 years. So, and there is a love and respect there that doesn't need to be said all the time. It just, it does exist. But again, having said all that, I think the most important instinct I've had, or just maybe it's who I am, their life, you know, their hotels, their plane, you know, their backstage, when I hang out with them on tour and they're hanging out with other people and so on and so forth, that's their life. I'm an invitee. It's not my life. You know what I mean? So when you're hanging in these sort of like, you know, sometimes you're in these crazy situations where you're hanging with, you know, there's an actor over here, there's a person over there. And whilst you, whilst yes, you get used to it, it's not my life. And I think it's a really important delineator. And it's really important to note that their life is not my life. And I do sometimes feel like a little bit of an imposter when I'm in those situations because it's not it's not my life. Do you know what I mean? I do. It is and it isn't. I don't know if it's making sense. I no, think it is. I do. And I've seen many people come in. You do this and you see this with every band. It's not just them. You see those some people come in like a blazing star and they just like they assume they're in the band. And they behave yeah. like they are. I think yeah. every band has this and every organization and probably every famous person goes through this. They're not. And you're not. There's only four members of Metallica. There's only what five members of the Rolling Stones or six or whatever. Do you know what I'm saying? There's the band, and all the rest of us. Yeah, we're happy to be. We're happy to be there. Sure. <laughs> and grateful. You know. I, I totally get it. And at the same time, though, th- 35 years later, it's like, well, at some point, it is. It is part of your life. I mean, you put in that much time. It is. And then, so that's that's where you sort of have to turn around when people say to you, and you know, one of the. Yeah, one of the things that still gets me, yeah, really excited is when someone like Lars or James, as he did after this last interview, turns around and says, "You know, thank you. You know, you're great at what you do." And they'll read over their stuff and take a look. And by the way, one thing that people should know about Metallica and the interviews I do, I cannot think of anything of any note that I've ever been asked to take out of a piece. Amazing, you know. And I mean, they do look over them, but never. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, the last time this one James sent back, he said. This is perfect. This is great. Thank you. I mean, that's nice. But that's a professional respect, and that's a great gift. So, yeah. Well, he's right. Then, so yes, you're right. It's time. It's time. Maybe it is time to do a book because there's been enough of those. I mean, from David Bowie saying it to him. <laughs> How much more endorsement do you need? Yeah, it's like you know, grow a pair and stand up and say, look, it's okay to be. It's okay to say that people like what you do and that you're good at it. It's okay. So yes, I am. It's <laughs> going to finally do that. So. <laughs> It'll come out at some point. (laughs) James is right. They're lucky to have you. And so are we. Thank you for for giving us your time. Valuable time. Thanks very much. Come on the show. It's always a treat to talk to you. And when you do come out with your book, uh, you got to come back on and tell us all about it. I will. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah, fun chat. Thank you. Master! Master! There you have it. Stefan Shirazi. Very cool dude. Uh, Very grateful that he came on, gave us his time. And just always uh, grateful for his insight. So you heard the man. He's got... 
the Patreon. First of all, go support him on Patreon. If you got some extra bucks to throw around, you know, I selfishly want to see this book published. Um, and I think the more of you who let him know that that's something you're interested in, the more confident he will be to uh, to publish it. And part of the way that you do that is you support artists like um, Stefan in that endeavor. I'm also going to list below his football podcast. I know we have a lot of listeners in the UK and in Europe who will probably be very interested in his very passionate takes on football. And I'm also going to link below, I found um, a place online that's called Rocks Back Pages. And there is an area of that website that has a bunch of uh, Stefan's writings. I mean, I'm, I'm just going to give you a quick little uh, burn through. So we've got Bon Jovi, Michael Bolton, of course, Metallica, Slayer, Beastie Boys, Anthrax, Dan Zig, Motley Crue, Faster Pussycat, Faith No More, Joe Satriani, Chili Peps, Melvins. I mean, look at all these dudes. ZZ Top, uh, Moore Slayer, Helmet. He he reviewed Opiate when when uh, Tools Opiate came out. Here's the Nirvana stuff, the Soundgarden stuff. Um, you know, so those links are going to be down there. Support his writing, support him. He is on Instagram also. If you want to find him and and shoot him a message and say, hey, I heard you on Metal Up Your Podcast and encourage me to support you on Patreon or et cetera, or I loved your opinions about whatever. I'm sure he would appreciate that. Once again, thank you to Stefan Shirazi. You can write in metal up your podcast show at gmail.com. Let us know your thoughts on our conversation. Let us know what you want to see on metal up your podcast in the future. Let us know what you think about the 72 seasons era. And as usual, we appreciate you out there. Those of you who listen, who support the show, the patrons, the folks who take the time to send nice words to uh, tag us in your social media. We really couldn't do it without you. We appreciate your support. We love you. We'll see you on the flippity floppity. Peace. <laughs> if you were our advisor, what would you say? Then I would say, delete that. <laughs>